as I mentioned last week, we are doing a survey of the Noble Eightfold Path this month, and last week I talked on wise view, and um, Caroline talked on wise intention, both um, renunciation, mostly in her talk, and non-ill will or metta in her morning reflections. And this morning I started to talk about uh, wise mindfulness, which will be the subject of my talk tonight. Classical teachings on wise mindfulness are the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutra. Most of you are probably a little bit familiar with it. I'll talk about each foundation and some of the specifics of them. And I'd also like to focus some on the intention of like, why are we paying attention to these four foundations of body, feeling tone, mind, and the last one is translated many different ways, mind, objects, wisdom. Um, I find it really... In the past, when I've looked at the four foundations of mindfulness, sometimes they seem like four disjointed things to me. Like, oh, well, there's this, and then there's this, and there's this, and this. And um, I've really come to, to value how they, um, you could say, slide into each other, and how they're related, and how they're, in some ways, a very logical pro- progression of, of how practice develops. And so I'm also going to bring that into my description tonight. And I like to think of the four foundations of mindfulness not as um, some prescription for transcending this human realm, but actually a prescription for how to connect fully with this human realm, with being human, with this very life that we all have. And I encourage you, um, as I seem to do often, to, to allow yourself not to actually even know for sure what mindfulness is. I was thinking in, uh, this afternoon as I was walking, it's like, what is mindfulness? <laughs> and there's a way that I really appreciate a kind of mystery around it or a kind of um, ineffable quality A number of years ago, and not even that many years ago, I was on retreat in Burma, and um, I went into my teacher and I said, you know, I feel like maybe I'm finally kind of understanding a little bit what mindfulness is. And um, she laughed and she said, that's great, that means you're really practicing. So many of you may have heard about the four foundations of mindfulness before, but what's it like to let it in um, kind of fresh, not knowing? We love to know, don't we? There's such a comfort in knowing. (laughs) And the not knowing is sometimes a little bit um, of discomfort, but that's the place where we open and we grow and we learn new things. We, we go deeper into the texture of life, or the texture of life reveals itself through not knowing. 
I would even say it's a quality of mindfulness to not know, to not be sure, to be willing to see fresh, freshly, which is a little bit what I was pointing towards this morning. So what what is mindfulness? <laughs> I will say or put out a few ideas. We could talk the whole talk about that, so it won't be an exhaustive list, but just some reflections. So the root, the word sati in Pali, the root of it is to remember. I'll be honest, that always hasn't made a lot of sense to me. But a way that it does make sense to me is that there's this um, remembering to be awake. Or this remembering to be aware. That is mindfulness. And, and it, 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 it um, pops up, right? We're, we're lost in some story or some world or some reactivity. And then there's this remembering where we are, what we're doing. A kind of remembering of, of connection. And when we have that moment of waking up, what's it, no matter, it may be very short, but when we have that moment of waking up, we do have, we have a moment of mindfulness. We remember in that moment, and it might last one moment and then we're gone again, but, but we remember. There may be different um, levels of energy or effort that we bring to mindfulness, but mindfulness itself is effortless. That can be good to remember. <laughs> so perhaps that could, we could say it's a, it's a kind of resting in intimacy with what's happening. Suzuki Roshi called it a, a soft readiness. I love that soft readiness because there's this willingness in that description, this willingness for intimacy with life. We go in and out of that willingness. That soft readiness of has that alertness in it and it has that softness in it. A while ago I was reading about uh, an African-American healer named George Washington Carver. So he was born into slavery in 1864 and then as an adult he became a a well-known healer for having this genius for working with plants. And he said, this, this is how he said he learned how to heal. He said, all the flowers talk to me and so do hundreds of living things in the woods. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. 
And what I love about that statement is it's not just watching, it's watching and loving. And, and, and there's that intimacy there with that word loving, the getting close to, the willing to be touched by, to touch, to connect with, to be intimate with. I wonder if our mindfulness has that quality of, you could say, watching and loving, or do we, or do we think it's drier than that? Is it cool or is it warm? Bringing that um, quality of warmth of some kind whatever that means to you, um, to me connects us more deeply. So it makes the mindfulness, you could say, more penetrative, more um, closer. And perhaps by watching and loving this world, this life, these moments by moments by moments of experience, we let life teach us in the same way that the plants taught George Washington Carver. So there's that softness to this description of mindfulness. I think sometimes we approach our practice like we're hunters and we have to go out and hunt down mindfulness. There's this, sometimes this intensity of we got to get it. And I'm going to suggest perhaps we be a little bit more like farmers. <laughs> we can tend the earth, we can tend the, the soil, and then we let things grow. We water, perhaps, and then we're patient as things grow. Perhaps this is a better way to approach mindfulness. So perhaps mindfulness could be described as a receptive, alert presence. Bhante Gunaratana has this whole list in one of his books of, of ways to describe mindfulness. And one of them, he says that it's very related to this word, aparnada which um, can mean absence of madness, <laughs> which I like that description of mindfulness too. <laughs> this, this mindful presence gives us this opportunity to have a sane and sensible relationship with the world rather than an insane relationship, which is what we usually have. Somebody, I can't remember who, described Buddhism as advanced common sense. Maybe that's like aparnada. So we have these four foundations, the body, feeling tone, mind states, and I'll just say mind objects for the moment. And with each one of these satipatthanas, foundations, the Buddha talked about investigating internally and externally, and then internally, both, both. And I find it uh, perhaps fitting in modern Western 
dominant culture, individualistic culture, that we pretty much focus interiorly. (laughs) That's the way we think of mindfulness. We think of it as really just looking within ourselves. But if you read the Satipatthana Sutra, it talks about investigating inward, interiorly and externally, internally and externally. So there's a way that we understand this body. What does it mean to understand externally? Perhaps it, it's to have this awareness that isn't too self-absorbed, that also looks outwards and perhaps understands that all bodies have the same nature. And there's a sense of, of um, having this global awareness also of the field around us. It's a related word, sampajana, kind of the mindfulness of our environment. Perhaps this externally we, we can have this deep, bow to the humanity of others, include them in the field of mindfulness. So let's begin our um, survey of the four. We'll start with the body. The first thing that is quite amazing is that of all the the four foundations, the body is the one that is dealt with most extensively and has the most pages, has pages and pages of descriptions of different ways of connecting with the body. So there's uh, connecting with the breath, connecting with our posture, connecting with full awareness of our movements and what we're doing. Um, there's, there's meditation on the different parts of the body, the elemental nature of the body, earth, wind, air, and fire, and death meditation. It, it's pretty deep, <laughs> pretty extensive, covers a lot of territory. And for me, that just points to the um, this really important, the, this, this real importance of having a strong foundation in connection with the physical form, with our bodies, when we practice. The importance of being embodied. And for many of us, this is an ongoing um, exercise, (laughs) an ongoing exploration. There's this movie called um, Finnegan's Wake. And in it, the um, character, James Joyce character, Mr. Duffy, is described as someone who always lived a short distance from his body. 
And um, I think that <laughs> describes many of us. It certainly is the tendency of our culture is to be disembodied, to have our energy only up here in our, in our heads or somewhere floating around above our, our heads. So how do we arrive here in the body, connected? The breath, the posture, movement, our senses are all ways of of beginning to establish a relationship with being embodied. Why is this so important? There are several reasons. One reason is for stability. I think uh, that many of us with our uh, our energy up here in our heads or a little above our heads, we're like those, uh, you know those plastic punch dolls that have the... um, the weight in the bottom and you punch it and it comes back up, it hits the ground, comes back up. We're the opposite. We have all our, we have the weight in the head and you hit it and it goes over and it stays over. (laughs) There's something about having this ballast of coming down into the body, down through the heart, into the belly, pelvis, hips, feet. Um that actually provides a certain kind of steadiness and resiliency that we can bounce back. So it's good for our own um, steadiness. But there's another reason, and and this really, um, this reason is that being embodied grounds us in reality. So we like to live a lot in the stories and thoughts in our heads, but we we create these alternative realities up there in our minds, <laughs> um, and they're very make believe, and they're fabricated, and um, often they're actually really disconnected to what's true and what's really going on. We filter out what we don't want to see. We get involved in strategizing to get what we want. We see things through distorted perception. But by connecting directly with the body, we start to become more in touch with, um, with real, true reality, the way things are. And we start to see how um, we have hardened ourselves We start to connect. Often body body tension becomes very predominant, very noticeable, seeing the places where we've hardened to protect the heart and the mind from reality. And we start to soften into those places, open up what's been bound up, free up what's been bound up. And so we come out of these imaginary worlds into something uh, more real, more grounded. 
And what we find is that we come in touch with more of the fundamental truths of life. The truths of anicca, dukkha, anatta, the truths of impermanence, unreliability, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. So we come into the body. We start to see that it's changing a lot all the time. (laughs) Even what we think is somewhat solid when we come close to it. So perhaps we have a headache, we think of it as something kind of solid, and we come close to it, get intimate, and we see that it's swirling and changing and ebbing, waning, intensifying, that there's perhaps gaps. It's, it's a very different experience when we come close to it. So we come closer to the truth of impermanence. And we start to see when we connect with the body that it changes often and it's unreliable. That if we need it to be a certain way, we are going to suffer. Dukkha. That if we try to hold on and make it obey our wishes, dukkha. And we start to see that it's a very impersonal process, actually. What is it? What can we claim as ours? And how would we even begin to claim it? I'm one of these people who loves to read about quantum physics and astronomy and things like that. I'm going to share a little information with you. Our own DNA is a copy of a copy of a copy, a soft thread in a cell that has been duplicated repeatedly and continuously for three to four billion years. Wow. Can you claim that? (laughs) We're older than rocks. Most of the phosphorus in us is leached out of planetary rocks. Wow. Not self, huh? And then there's this one phosphorus-containing molecule called, oh, I'm just going to do its abbreviation, ATP. It says it's manufactured 10 million times per second in each one of our approximately 100 trillion body cells for approximate total of 10 to the 22nd, I have no idea what that word would be, 10 to the 22nd phosphorus units turned over every second in our bodies. Anicca. <laughs> so we, so we, we, we close in here, we close in on the body and we start to see, wow, the world, it, 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 it's not what we thought it was. And we start to see these fundamental truths about life. Very helpful in developing wisdom. And the body includes the five senses. So we have not only the physical form, touch, but we have hearing and seeing and smelling and tasting. 
Any one of these senses can teach us about anicca, dukkha, anatta. I particularly, um, I, I, I always have a great time doing eating meditation. There's something about, it's just so interesting and easy to keep the attention. And I was on retreat here a few months ago and I was eating in the dining room and just having a bite of chili And it was like, like the bite of chili. It's just like um, these moments of what we call chili were just life bubbling up and manifesting and disappearing and manifesting and disappearing and manifesting and disappearing. It's like, what was that? Where did that come from? That's what life does. It manifests and disappears and manifests and disappears. We can learn that from a bite of chili. And there's that, and when we see life like that, um, the solidity of it starts to become transparent. And then when it becomes more transparent, the grasping, it's like, what, what could we grasp at? The grasping lessons, and then we're into the Four Noble Truths, right? That I talked about last time. Hmm. So we start to see that mindfulness pairs up with wisdom. And that wisdom is, is, uh, um, becomes, or, uh, or, well, it's, it's said that in a pure moment of mindfulness, wisdom arises also, that those mind states arise together. And we start to feel that more in our practice as mindfulness deepens. And this is uh, the, the, the perhaps real intention of mindfulness is this bringing along of wisdom that helps us to see clearly, that helps to free the heart and the mind. So let's move on and see how wisdom also accompanies the other foundations of mindfulness. So as we come into the body, it quickly becomes obvious to us that moments of experience have a different, have different feeling tones or have one of three basic feeling tones. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, what we call neutral. That first impression, you could say, of sense contact, when we have the contact with the senses, there's that first um, yeah, impression of whether that experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And I remember early in my practice, or earlier in my practice, thinking, 
why does this little business get its own whole foundation? Doesn't that seem a little exaggerated? (laughs) And, um, well, the reason why (laughs) is because this is um, the place where the chain of conditioning intensifies or really gets going, right? Um, and this is where we, we, we start moving either towards suffering, dukkha, samsara, or we move, can, with the potential of mindfulness, move towards freedom. And so that feeling tone is actually really important in working out our liberation. So we need to get very intimate also with feeling tone. It's very deep evolutionary conditioning, this, when there is a pleasantness that we will try to keep it, and when there's unpleasantness that we will try to get rid of it, and when there's neutrality that we just won't pay much attention. It's very, very deep human conditioning. And it's conditioning basically for survival. It's not conditioning for our happiness. It's basically conditioning for carrying on our genes. (laughs) That's how we we got programmed there. (laughs) And so we are looking at how Basically, can we free ourselves from being trapped in this conditioning? Because we're unconsciously, you could say, beholden to it. But with mindfulness, we start to have options. That's the beautiful part. So with mindfulness, when we bring mindfulness to feeling tone, we start to see that perhaps pleasant can be pleasant and does not have to lead to grasping. Unpleasant can be unpleasant and does not have to lead to pushing away. Neutral can be neutral and does not have to lead to spacing out. I was having lunch here at the Forest Refuge on a retreat a few months ago. <laughs> I love working with pleasantness and, and food and eating. Like So I was having some bite of something pleasant. What's interesting is I don't remember what it was. But I remember it was pleasant. And there was this moment of mindfulness. And wisdom was embedded in the mindfulness. It was right there with it. And wisdom knew that this pleasantness was impermanent and it made no sense to hold on to it. I know that sounds like, well, so what? Just a little moment. But but we have these moments (laughs) where um, it wasn't a thought. It was so much more embedded together with the mindfulness. I didn't think, oh, this is impermanent. And it's not worth grasping to it. It was like right there with the mindfulness, it knew that. And it was just in enjoying the pleasantness. No grasping. 
that's freeing the mind of that automatic conditioning. Now sometimes, <laughs> let's be honest here, sometimes we are eating, perhaps, or something pleasant is happening. And we bring mindfulness to the pleasantness and it's like, so what? I still want it to stay. <laughs> so grasping still happens, right? We'll get to that in the third foundation of mindfulness. But it's just to say that sometimes it, sometimes um, the mind opens and frees and sometimes we keep working it. And there's power in either way, right? So there's power in seeing that conditioning and just doing it mindfully rather than doing it without mindfulness. Because we learn. So we're mindfully with the pleasantness and then we notice the grasping and then we notice, oh, the grasping um, closes down my world. And the grasping actually, when it becomes strong, I don't even taste the pleasantness anymore. So we learn by, by doing it mindfully. So don't let my little experiment um, set you up for how it should be. That's always a trap, that word should. And so then with unpleasantness, the question is the same. Can we be with unpleasantness? And for me, there's a way, like, can we soften with unpleasantness? Because the unpleasantness, right, the the aversion is this hardness that's like, no, this experience cannot be, it's not acceptable, can't happen, must go away. So there's this kind of um, armoring against whatever the experience is. Can we begin to soften into it? That mindfulness that watches and loves, whether it's the pain in the heart, the pain in the body, unpleasantness of a mouthful of food. <laughs> can we allow, can we soften into? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So we watch the conditioning that unpleasantness than the conditioning to push it away. What's that like? What's the aversion? What is that experience? What does it tell us and how does it influence the experience, the original experience? And then neutral. With neutral we're called to not disconnect. So with neutral, when we disconnect, then our conditioning goes into our automatic conditioning, our automatic habitual delusional conditioning <laughs> about life. It takes over. And so with neutral, it's can we stay present? Now some people notice a lot of neutral in their practice and some people notice very little. In my early practice, I didn't feel like I had a moment of neutral. It was all unpleasant. (laughs) 
I, I didn't even notice pleasant. It was just unpleasant. Everything was unpleasant. Um, I really was like, neutral? What are you talking about? That was my type. There's something about neutral that we find, or connecting with neutral, that we often find um, scary because we have to risk perhaps being bored. We are so much stimulation junkies. <laughs> neutral calls for a certain kind of refinement of what we need on the stimulation level. Neutral can have it can be a really wonderful to place to have our first experiences of peace. I remember I was practicing a number of years ago and it was again food, it was tea, drinking tea and loving tea, Burmese tea. La Pecho. <laughs> sweet tea, <laughs> really good stuff. And so I was working a lot with the pleasantness of, of the tea and, and letting go and all. And I was telling my teacher, and at one point he's like, well, did you notice neutral? Like, I was talking about, I think, at the end of the mouthful of tea and kind of disappointment that had gone away, you know. And uh, he said, did you notice neutral? And so I go back and like I noticed, you know, after the pleasantness passed away, yeah, that was this neutral. And then I was like, oh my God, what a great place. There's nothing to grasp onto or push away. Because <laughs> neutral doesn't bring up that conditioning to grasp or push away. So it can be a place where we can start to understand a certain kind of peace in the mind and heart. Unless we want more stimulation, in which case then we're, yeah. Something else is going on. So the second foundation, so um, essential to, to investigate and to understand, really also to see the impermanence of, of these, a feeling tone that it just keeps changing changing fast all the time. So the third foundation really comes out of the second one. So the third foundation is um, mind, mind states. Because out of of these... um, Feeling tones, often mind states are generated, right? So it makes sense that it follows along. I want to read, uh, it's a very short section on this, but I want to read it because uh, I think it's really important. Contemplation of mind. And how bhikkhus? Does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a bhikkhu understands mind affected by sense desire as mind affected by sense desire, and mind unaffected by sense desire as mind unaffected by sense desire. 
They understand mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. They understand mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. They understand contracted mind as contracted mind, and distracted mind as distracted mind. They understand exalted mind as exalted mind, and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. And it goes on a little bit more. That's it. It's great. It doesn't, interestingly, this foundation doesn't say to do a whole lot with these mind states, does it? So mind states come up for us and we're often like, what do, what do I got to do with this? And basically the third foundation is get to know it just as it is. There's some kind of sense, desire, wanting in the mind. Okay, what's that like? How does that manifest, get to know it intimately, get close to it, watch it and love it. A mind unaffected by wanting. Ah, what's that like? Get close to it. Watch it and love it, get to know it, get intimate. And what I love about this third foundation is there's this sense of letting the mind kind of work out its own business with mindfulness or letting mindfulness and awareness do the work rather than our projects about what should or should not be happening in our mind and heart. It's great. We don't have to condemn the mind for how it's manifesting. We don't have to Take it personally. None of that sounded so personal, did it? Doesn't mean we're flawed if the mind, it's a mind affected by hate and that we're some kind of um, deva if it's a mind unaffected by hate. Just means be with it, whatever it is, get to know it. There's a certain kind of anatta right there in the description a certain kind of not-selfness and um, impersonality about it all. Um, A few weeks ago, my friend... One of my friends posted on Facebook this uh, little um, video of a, of a girl. She must have been hmm, maybe four years old. And um, she's crying and she says, she's talking to her mom or it seems like her mom or her dad. She's, she's crying and she's like, I want waffles. And her mom's like, you know, we had waffles for dinner last night. We had waffles for breakfast. We're not having waffles again. And she's like, I want waffles. She goes, I can't stop thinking about waffles. Why can't I stop thinking about waffles? (laughs) It was like so poignant. She was like, why can't I stop? (laughs) 
it was kind of very human right so my friend temple posts this on facebook and then he writes she's about to have a real breakthrough around craving (laughs) (laughs) craving usually has some obsessive thinking with it right that's what we see we see it in our own practice that's the nature of craving And craving then tells us that if we just had waffles, we would be happy. It's so fun to listen to these stories of craving and aversion because they're absolutely crazy when you, when you listen to them. It's like, wow, there's a lot of delusion there. But often the stories are kind of hidden. You, you can't really hear them. But if you, you start listening more to your mind, it's like, oh, wow. If they just have dessert at lunch today, I'm going to be happy. I'll probably be happy the rest of my life if they have dessert at lunch today. And when you say it, you know it's not true, right? (laughs) It's secret, right? It's not like it says that out loud. It's like craving knows that its cover would be blown if it said it out loud. So it kind of is just sneaky in the background there. But the great thing about retreat is we can kind of invite these voices to come into the foreground where we can see them and start to use common sense. (laughs) Buddhism has advanced common sense. Hmm. And the great thing about this third foundation and just leaving them alone, or or just, well, we don't totally leave mind states alone, we bring awareness, right? Is that awareness, um, it does transform these mind states, especially the afflictive ones, right? It, It does dampen afflictive ones, and it does encourage wholesome mind states. So we're, all, we're almost into the fourth. I'm starting to wander into the fourth already. See, this is how related they are. I was just noticing a few weeks ago when I was writing this talk, I, I woke up one morning and I just kind of felt on edge. And that usually is a sign to me that there's some emotion that I am ignoring and need to allow. So I was doing my practice and... Um, I realized that actually what I was feeling was this very um, deep fear. I realized I had heard something on the radio the day before I didn't like. So I noticed there was this really deep, visceral fear and hatred. That was what was in my heart. And um, I realized I hadn't given a lot of room to either one of those for a while. (laughs) So I just sat there and I was like, I let them be brought mindful awareness, which is different than feeding, right? So that is important. I wasn't feeding those emotions. I wasn't feeding the stories. But I was letting, you know, I was noticing a mind and heart affected by fear and hatred and what that was like. It's almost like just giving them some room to, to just be. And over time, what they, they just lessened on their own or with awareness. I wasn't trying to make them lessen, but they did. They kind of died down. And then what happened was that the 
really more wholesome mind states of compassion. Basically, compassion emerged. I didn't do that either. Awareness did that also. It's like when the afflictive emotions are um, met with mindfulness and their energy begins to dissipate, then the more wholesome emotions are there. They're part of our makeup. They have room to show when they're not um, hidden behind the barricade of fear or hatred. And we also see with these mind states that they're impermanent. When we're with them, we see they're impermanent, unsatisfactory, that that we can't hang on to them for our source of happiness, and that they're not so personal. It really felt like, oh, this is how life is manifesting in this moment. Oh, causes and conditions came together, and this is what we have. Oh, we have fear. It's not my fear, it's not your fear, it's the coming together of causes and conditions. And then awareness brought into the equation changed those causes and conditions. Didn't turn into my compassion. (laughs) It's just, ah, that's what was next to manifest. And so this third foundation then moves into the fourth foundation called the mindfulness of dhammas. Um, I think of this fourth foundation as basically uh, mindfulness of wisdom or a kind of meta-awareness, M-E-T-A, meta-awareness in our practice that gives us some um, guidelines for and developing understanding, developing wisdom. And there's a way that this fourth foundation feels a little different. It feels more conceptual. But it's really meant to point us right back to our experience and to being right with our experience. So in the sutras that have come to us in general, there's a, 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 a listing of um, one, two, three, four, five kind of subjects in the fourth foundation. There's the hindrances, the factors of awakening, the six sense bases, the aggregates, and the four noble truths. I was reading um, a while ago Analio's book on um, the Satipatthana Sutra, and he did some some textual analysis where he uh, looked at um, the Satipatthana Sutra in different uh, versions, and the Chinese version and others. And apparently, that of all of these five, there's only two of these sets that show up in all the versions. And so he says there's a possibility that those were actually the original two and that the others were added on. And this makes a lot of sense to me because the original two are the um, hindrances and the factors of awakening. 
And you could see how this comes out of the third foundation because basically the hindrances are unwholesome mind states. The factors of awakening are wholesome mind states. So we come out of the third foundation of being with these both wholesome and unwholesome mind states. And then in the fourth foundation, we start to bring some wisdom and discernment to understanding what are the causes and conditions that um, bring about the arising of these mind states. And specifically with the hindrances, what are the, what are the causes and conditions that... Um, assist us in abandoning the hindrances or letting them go or, um, yeah. And then with the factors of awakening, what are the causes and conditions that, that encourage the factors of awakening to keep growing or to strengthen wholesome mind states to strengthen? So basically, really understanding um, the causes and conditions that lead to unwholesome mind states, the causes and conditions that lead to wholesome mind states. So with the hindrances, for example, we're um, encouraged to notice whether they're present or absent, what causes them to arise, what causes them to dissipate, and how it is that they um, don't arise again or non-arising again, right? So really, you know, taking a good look at the, the chain of conditioning, you could say. And with enlightenment factors, present or absent, what causes them to arise? What causes it to continue? They flow very nicely, the whole thing, from body to the feeling tone to the mind states and then to the wisdom and understanding of the mind states and how they evolve. Unfortunately, we are coming to the end of our time together. It's a lot to cover all four um, uh, foundations in one talk, but again, as I said last week, I wanted to give you guys the classical teachings. Since we're going through the Noble Eightfold Path, I wanted to give you the classical teachings of mindfulness, which are these four foundations, or the Satipatthana. I think I'll end with a very short quote from the Buddha himself. Bhikkhus, just as the river Ganges, whatever great rivers there are, all slant, slope, and incline towards the ocean, so to a bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, who develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path, slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana.
that with wise mindfulness we use our our own experience, this very heart, body, mind sitting here to develop understanding, wisdom and understanding, to shepherd the heart and mind towards liberation, towards freedom. The great news is you don't need a different heart, body or mind. You have everything you need right here. And then we have the blessing of this beautiful facility, so supportive of our quiet, our silence. A beautiful time of year with the silence of the snow. The snow on the ground, the snow that's just starting to fall again. Let the silence of the snow falling support your interior silence. What a blessing to be safe and warm, well-fed in such a beautiful place. What a blessing to be able to practice the Noble Eightfold Path together. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your practice. Let's sit for a moment before we do our final chant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.